0: Are we still in Mark's gospel? Yes, sort of. But we're going to also take a little hiatus, sort of. Last week we read in Mark's gospel the last two of the four parables of Jesus that Mark packaged together in chapter four of his gospel, and we talked broadly about the word of God being planted in us as we saw in those parables, and the word of God Uh, being intended to shine as it grew in us. To shine and give light to the world, to expose things that are hidden in darkness and to reveal God's gospel and his kingdom. Last week we talked about how this seed planted grows and how this seed is the kingdom of God. Jesus said it is likened to the kingdom of God and how it grows and it's intended to grow and how we don't understand that always. But God brings it about and how uh, this kingdom seed planted within us and in the world grows and grows and grows so that one day it will be huge, it will reach its completion, it will be a blessing to all and God will be glorified. And last Sunday morning, I tied that in some with the mission statement of our congregation, which is to honor God by helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And we talked about how those parables, specifically about seeds growing, plants growing in the kingdom of God, encourage us because our call, our mission is to honor God by helping people become and to grow and grow and grow into more and more fully devoted followers of Jesus all of the time. That is our mission statement. It has been. It continues to be. It will be. This morning as we veer away from Mark's gospel for a bit, we're going to take a closer look this morning at our core values that came out of a discerning and visioning process for us that we did last year and that we're continuing to do so and move into the implementation of. Uh, We, your elders, uh, nine different leaders from around the congregation, some of our staff and I, spent most of last year uh, through three pandemic-delayed Uh, retreats and conversations in between those, working on discerning these values. We took the results or the responses of the survey that almost all of you filled out and did in January. And then the notes from six or eight focus groups that many of you participated in in February. And we took all of that information, discerned it, compiled it, talked about it, prayed about it, listened prayed again, listened again, shared, explored, tried things on, and came up with these five values and the prelude or the prologue that goes to them. And we think, we know that it's really important that we all, just as we understand our stated mission, that all of us also know and can articulate and understand these values that define who we have been and are and will be so that we might live them. Important that we might be able to not only know them and understand them, but uh, embody them as we move forward as a congregation. So for this reason and to this end, we're going to spend the next seven Sundays this morning and the next six Sundays looking at and talking about our five core values And the prologue that sets them up or introduces them, all grounded in Scripture, with Scripture as our foundation, with Scripture as our starting place. And before we read from the Scriptures this morning, uh, join me one more time in prayer. God, we ask that you would uh, prepare our minds to receive Your word that you would prepare our hearts to receive that seed. That you would help us to set aside our preconceived ideas, the uh, constraints that we ourselves put on how we see and what we see and even on you. Open to us your truth and your grace through your word that we might be transformed, that we might grow, that we might through our lives bring you greater and greater glory. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now opening the scriptures, join me in the gospel of Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Coincidentally and providentially, where we left off last Sunday, listen closely. This is God's word. They went across the lake, Jesus and his closest disciples, to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit or an unclean spirit or an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at Jesus in front of him on his knees. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. Jesus gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the ten cities there, how much Jesus had done for him, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. And that, my friends, is one super fun day in the life of Jesus section of Mark's gospel that we are going to spend a good bit of time with another Sunday down the road. I'm going to come back to this passage in a little while for a moment. But we're going to spend most of our time with this passage later on but it's important because it's the next passage in Mark for us that we at least touch on it this morning but for now stay with me I want to jump over to our core values and talk for a few minutes about them here they are up on the screen following the Lord Jesus we strive to love all people unconditionally serve our neighbors generously Advance God's purposes globally, pour into the next generation intentionally, and cultivate spiritual growth continually. Now, I want to ask you to say these out loud with me at home. And my wife and I talked about this last night, and we decided that very few people are actually going to do that if they're by themselves. But I want to encourage you to do that anyway, just as an exercise, and it is. As a sign of our unity here through the live stream, let's speak these together. Even if you're at home alone, even if the people you may be with think this is weird, let's do it. Following the Lord Jesus, we strive to love all people unconditionally, serve our neighbors generously, advance God's purposes globally, Pour into the next generation intentionally and cultivate spiritual growth continuously. Good. And I'd like to give you some background now and this morning about how we arrived at these and about specifically how we arrived at the prologue, I'll call it. The nine elders who were on our elder board last year, some of our staff, some of our other leaders in the congregation and I over the course of these pandemic-delayed 12 months last year as I said had numerous conversations spent time in prayer listening discerning working our way through all the data all the feedback all of our thoughts all of our prayers all that we'd been over the course of the recent years and put all that together and said God lead us And that process of arriving at new values and the prologue went through a number of tweaks. And we'd set the things aside and then we'd come back to it. We'd set them aside and come back to it. Talk a little bit more, share a little bit more, listen a little bit more, pray a little bit more, and come back to it. And late and nearly uh, the penultimate version of the prologue of these values, specifically the prologue, a late and penultimate version of those went like this following Jesus we strive to following Jesus we strive to and that's the way the prologue which had we hadn't initially envisioned having as part of our values That's how that prologue sat for a bit of time. But then at the very end of the process, we realized something important was missing. Something essential was missing. The words, the Lord. And while we could have continued with the prologue the way it was, shorter is better, fewer words are easier to remember and memorize, the consensus was that we needed the Lord in there. And here is why. Jesus, in many ways, is clear enough. We've read about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark through four chapters now. He had not been called Lord to this point. Either by his disciples or by strangers strangers or his adversaries or by himself. Jesus was just Jesus. Jesus is just Jesus. We know of just one Jesus. He was healer and dispeller of demons. He was preacher and teacher. He was one who had authority to forgive sins. One who has authority over certain aspects of creation. One we saw who had authority over those who had authority on earth and in that culture at the time. But there is more. There was and there is. And it revolves around this word Lord. When we see the word Lord, capital L, or Lord even lowercase in English in the Bible, it is usually in the Old Testament. A translation of one of the sacred Hebrew words for God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, or Adonai, or Adon, or Elohim. Now when we see the word Lord, capital L, or Lord little l, sometimes, in the New Testament, it is always translating the Greek word kurios, meaning variously, according to context, master. In other words, one to whom service is due or owed, or owner, or sir. It is used in reference to kings, to emperors, to husbands, to fathers, and a title of courtesy. To a stranger, much like it might be in English. And it was not a title often used by Jesus, owned by Jesus, given to Jesus. Until after his resurrection, when his true identity was fully revealed. With Thomas, who unfortunately has been given the label, the doubter exclaimed when he saw for the first time the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God, in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. My Lord and my God, effectively and forever uniting the two general meanings of Lord, in other words, the secular and the sacred, and attaching them inseparably to Jesus, in Jesus. Therefore, Except for one instance in the book of Acts and one instance in the book of Revelation. There is no record after that that kurios was ever again used by believers in addressing anyone except God and the Lord Jesus in the scriptures. From then on in the scriptures, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord and God. His true and full identity is understood and clear. On the day of Pentecost, shortly after Jesus' resurrection, when the Holy Spirit visited God's people with tongues of fire and power, and when the newly empowered and emboldened Peter stood up before the masses to address the crowd, he said, he began... Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he goes on for a number of verses in Acts to unpack what the scriptures the Old Testament had to say about God's plan and God's King and God's Messiah. And then he wraps up or concludes that long speech or sermon with these words in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord, capital L, and Messiah. That was Peter. The Apostle Paul, in his experience and writings, in his experience and his later writings, continually understands from the first moment on the road to Damascus, Jesus as Lord, as Master and the Respected One, and the One to whom all things belong, and as God. Which is a remarkable thing in and of itself for he, Paul, a Jew of Jews, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, belonging to the people, the only people on the face of the earth up until that time who understood there to be one and only one God, only one God. And Paul from that point on. From his Damascus Road experience all the way through understands Jesus to be Lord, capital L, and God. As the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, the exact representation of God's being. And the one to whom all things belong over and over and over. And this changes everything. Others had cast out demons. Others had healed the infirm. Others had exposited the scriptures with power. Others had birthed great movements. Others had been martyred. But no one else had or has in love given his life for the sins of the world. And no one else has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection that is the hope of all humanity. Which along with the fullness of God in him made Jesus and makes Jesus uniquely Lord capital L Jesus is not our mascot he is not our spokesperson he is not chiefly friend or shepherd brother founder or even I dare I say the atoning sacrifice for our sins though he is absolutely that but rather he is Lord because he wasn't his messiah And son of God, as Mark asserts in the first verse of his gospel, in his theme verse we've talked about. And because he was the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. Because he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because of his resurrection. While in prison for his preaching, likely in Rome... The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi that we know as the book of Philippians in the Bible. And in chapter 2, one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament and all of the scriptures, Paul quotes what scholars agree was a hymn of the early church. Paul may have actually been the author of this hymn of the early church. We don't know for sure who the author was, but scholars agree that this was a central, it was like their amazing grace. The central hymn of the early church, possibly written by Paul, in which he affirms all that we've said, writing, starting at verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here goes the hymn. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or older translations say grasped. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And while this hymn likely served as an affirmation of faith, like we use the Apostles' Creed and as many more Christians in the world today and through history have used the Nicene Creed. Contained within this hymn in verse 11 was what scholars agree was the first and shortest And most common creed of the early church, the word simply, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And these were dangerous words. In the Roman Empire, the standard pledge of allegiance was, Caesar is Lord. But over against the compulsory affirmation of their day of the occupying government under which they lived, Christians declared at risk of their own lives, Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, but Jesus. I know a lot of people who want to keep Jesus out of politics, I know a lot of people who want to get Jesus into politics. They want to keep politics, a lot of people, out of the church. No one wants the pastor talking about politics. Please, I've been down that road. I know it. But from the very beginning, Jesus was, in as much as Christians spoke of him as Lord, an inherently political figure and so much more. But inevitably also a political figure. To say at the risk of one's own life that Jesus is Lord meant that one's highest and ultimate allegiance belonged to Jesus. That one held Jesus to be the highest authority on earth and above the earth and under the earth. To state unswervingly that Jesus is Lord meant that one took one's cues, one's directions, one's guidance, From Jesus, in our world today, to affirm Jesus as Lord would be like saying, Jesus is president. Jesus is my president. He is the highest authority in my life and in the world. He is the one I honor above all others. He is the ultimate authority for me in all matters of life and faith. Given the choice of listening to Jesus or someone else, I choose Jesus. I am choosing Jesus. All I have belongs to Jesus. All I own belongs to Jesus. All I am belongs to Jesus. Abraham Kuyper, the well-known Reformed theologian from earlier centuries, wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine belongs to me. The fact that Jesus is Lord doesn't allow for half-hearted allegiance, but rather calls a person to wholehearted devotion. Samuel Zwimmer, who was known as the pioneering missionary to Muslim people around the world, Samuel Zwimmer said, Unless Jesus is Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Unless Jesus is Lord of all of one's life and reality and will and being, he is not in one's life Lord of all, Lord at all. And our former set of values, which we haven't discarded, but which we've kind of set aside, The first and intentionally first of those values was the lordship of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus. And this is not the case in every church or for every people, for every community of Christian people, but it is for us. He is first, he is prominent, he is superior, he is chief, he is king in all things, he is Lord. He is our everything, he is our breath, he is our hope, he is our deliverer. He is the one to whom we belong, not against our wills, but joyfully according to our wills and according to the grace of God. He is Lord and His Lordship does not depend on our affirmation of such. He is simply in and of Himself Lord. There's talk and there has been talk over the recent decades in evangelicalism of accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord and people are more inclined to accept him as Savior, but not also as Lord. We want him to save us and he does save us. There is less eagerness sometimes for him to be Lord and to exercise his wonderful, gracious dominion over every aspect of, his, of our lives. But that is absolutely who he is and what he desires. Now go back to Mark 5. On our way back. It's Jesus' words. Go and tell them what the Lord has done for you. Dear man, beloved man, child of God, formerly possessed by a demon and demons. Go and tell what the Lord has done for you. And there's a way that we can read that at first that implies the Lord there is referencing God. But it's clear as we read the next verses and it becomes clear as we journey through Mark who the Lord is. The Lord is God and the Lord is absolutely and completely also Jesus. The one in whom the fullness of God dwelt, who is one with the Father. The one who exercises demons, the one who heals our wounds, the one who heals our memories, the one who reconciles, the one who has dominion in and over all things. He is Lord. And so the first of our values is following. Following not just Jesus, not just the Nazarene, not just the carpenter, not the son of a carpenter, not a rabbi, not a teacher, not a good man, not a healer, all of those things, but not only them, but following the Lord Jesus and so embedded in the very prologue of our new values is an affirmation of faith, a declaration of faith, an ordering of all things in the world and in our hearts that we believe, that we attest to, that we have decided, that we have come to know, that we profess that we will live following the Lord Jesus. And this affirmation of faith will affect what we do, why we do, how we do, and for whom we do. As we love, as we serve, as we advance, as we pour into, as we cultivate, the fact and the reality that Jesus is Lord will in every way affect what we do, why we do, how we do, and for whom and whose glory we do. To ascribe to Jesus the term Lord is to sign over the title of our lives to Jesus, acknowledging that every breath that we breathe comes from and is a gift from Jesus. Putting Jesus behind the steering wheel of our lives because we have experienced God's grace in Jesus. Because like the demon-possessed man, our lives have been transformed, renewed, freed from the chains, liberated, set free from oppression and sin, the bondage of sin. And so we declare that God is, in Jesus Christ, Lord over all that we will do, all that we will be, every aspect and facet of all of our lives. He is Lord over our marriages. He is Lord over our dating. He is Lord over our grieving. He is Lord over our celebrating. He is Lord over our home and our finances and our relationships. He is Lord over our hobbies and our gifts and our talents and our skills. He is Lord over our coming and our going, our sleeping and our waking. He is Lord over our talents, our words, our thoughts, our days off, our days on, our vocations, our entertainment, our retirement, our convalescence. He is Lord over our work. He is Lord over our play. He is Lord over the mountains in our lives. He is Lord over the valleys. He is Lord over our births. And He is Lord over our passing. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord.